morning everyone. Welcome here to our uh, uh, midweek service prayer meeting at Calvary Baptist Church of Trehearn. And also welcome to those uh, in tune with us via internet and APM signal here in town. Please open your hymnals on number 103. 103. One day. 103. Stone rolled away from the door. 
Then he arose over death he had conquered. Thou is ascended, my Lord evermore. Living he loved me, dying he saved me. Buried he carried my sins far away. One day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the skies with his glory will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved one's bringing. Glorious Savior, this Jesus is mine. Living here. Far away, rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again that we can look forward to that day when thy son is coming back we're thankful that there was a day when he left heaven's glory and came to this earth and was born of a virgin grew up amongst men he was crucified was buried was in the tomb for three days and three nights and then rose again victorious over sin and death we're thankful that there's a day coming soon when he's coming in the clouds and all the saints from the new testament time will meet him in the air we're also concerned for those who are lost and one day they will stand before the great white throne and they will not be ready. And so we pray this evening as we spend this time together, as people are listening, that if there's someone listening that's not saved, that they might see their need to humble themselves and to turn to thee and be saved today. That they would realize that it's very foolish to put this off for another day. We pray for the Dion family, pray as they meet tonight that they would want to know the truth, pray that we'd be able to meet with them and help them to see the importance of truth in their lives, they'd want their forgiveness and peace. We pray also for uh, Paula and her children and her family that uh, they might desire the truth in their hearts as they continue to remember Jack and and pray, Father, that they might see that they need to know the truth and be forgiven and saved. Pray that thou wouldst help us. We pray for boldness to be faithful to thee, to proclaim thy name faithfully. And we pray that we could be a help to others. Pray for our province as we're in the beginning of a campaign. And we pray, Father, as politicians go around and, and try to deceive people into voting for them, that there might be some of those politicians that would get saved see the need to humble themselves and be saved and realize that without Christ there is no answer for the problems that we're facing as a province. There's no answer for the problems we're facing as a country. 
We pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that Mr. Netanyahu would be saved and many others. We thank you for the opportunity we have of broadcasting into other countries. We pray for those that listen from the Philippines and Romania and uh, Singapore and the Netherlands. We pray for our opportunities that we have to reach into these countries, that people would be encouraged in the truth and know thy peace and blessing. So we thank thee for the opportunities that are given to us. May thy will be accomplished as we spend this time together tonight that we might want to glorify thee, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And over to 129. 129 at the cross. 129. Where I first saw 
burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by me, I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. And over to 442. Praise Him, praise Him. 442 <clears throat> Praise Him, praise Him Jesus our blessed Redeemer Sowing over His wonderful Turn to Galatians 
chapter 1. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be reading there from verses 6 through to the end of verse 10. We'll stand please for the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter six, beginning or chapter one, beginning at verse six. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men... I should not be the servant of Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful again that we have thy word, thankful again that we can read thy word, and we can study thy word, that we have the liberty in this country yet at this point to meet together openly and to study thy word. We can also talk to people on the street and in our workplaces and elsewhere and we can remind them of the truth. We're thankful, Father, that we have a gracious God who is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's why we have this opportunity to talk to people, because thy will is for many more to be saved. I pray that we would keep that in mind as we meet different people, that we would see that we have a God who wants them to know the truth that we would want to give them the truth so that they can consider their need to be born again. We ask thy will be accomplished as we spend this time together in thy word, and may we glorify thee, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The title this evening is Christians Cannot Be Men-Pleasers. Christians Cannot Be Men-Pleasers. We're still looking at church history, but taking it from a different perspective than maybe many others have done or some others have done. We're looking more at uh, the, the problems that, um, the reasons why churches have fallen and how we need to watch out ourselves that we don't become a statistic rather than remain as a true church. In spite of the fact that God created man perfectly, man uh, can, can be rather gullible. We see that Adam, even in the garden, even though he didn't have any sin in, in his own life, he was not created a sinner, he was created without sin. He lived in a garden that was perfect. We know that Satan was in that garden, and Satan deceived Eve. And Adam willfully listened to the lies that Satan had given to Eve, and he willfully disobeyed God. He chose to believe a lie rather than the truth. He had the truth right there, was in his heart and in his mind, 
but he chose to believe a lie. Now one of the things that we see right there in the beginning is that it refutes Calvinism. Calvinism suggests that a man has no choice in his salvation and in many other things in life. But we see in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam had a choice. He could choose to obey God and he could choose to disobey God. And the Bible tells us that by one man's disobedience. So Adam chose to disobey God. He wasn't forced to disobey God. He chose that. God didn't pre-program Adam that he had to sin. Now, our finite minds, people that allow the devil to take off with their minds, they look at the sin of, of Adam and they look at the promise of God that from the foundation of the world, God had his plan of redemption ready. And they say, well, why would God have his plan of redemption if he, if he uh, didn't expect man to sin? And that's where, where our finite minds run into trouble because we try to rationalize things that are beyond our capabilities to fully understand. We know that God gave Adam a choice. We know that Adam chose to sin. We know that God knew that, and that's why he had his plan of redemption prepared. That doesn't mean that he forced Adam to sin. Just as in the New Testament, when Jesus revealed who it was that was going to betray him, and he said, the Son of Man must be betrayed, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. So Judas had a choice. He didn't have to be the one. Somebody would do it, but it didn't have to be Judas. And so we all have a choice that we must make. So as we look at even at church history, and we look at how there are some churches from the past that started out fairly good, but today they're nothing more than social clubs, we realize that God did not force those churches to fall, but within the leadership of those churches, they decided to reject the truth and believe the lies of men. One of the things that we find, or that I find as a pastor, is that people like to put pressure on the pastor that he should teach this and he should not say this and so on. And so the pastor needs to be someone who is convinced of the truth, that he's not someone who's going to be pressured into being a politician. And uh, that's very important that we understand that. Pastors need to be men of God. They need to be sound in their own walk with God. They need to build upon the sure word of God and help people to see the importance of that. So the first thing we want to notice tonight is easily removed from the truth. If you look at verse 6 where we started there, it says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Paul is writing to Christians. It tells us in verse <clears throat> In verse 2 it says, And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, 
In verse 6, as we read, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ. So Paul is writing to people who were called into the grace of Christ, but they're not well grounded in the truth, and they are waffling as to whom they should follow. Easily removed from the truth. That's a problem that we find in the Bible, and that's a problem that we can see in our world today. When we look at church history, and we're going to be looking a little bit later on at the Mennonite religion for one, um, that's my background, so I can pick on that one, uh, but we're going to look at that a little bit and see how the Mennonites today are far from where Menno Simons was. Menno Simons was a man who was studying the Word of God and who was teaching the Word of God. However, <clears throat> when you look at the majority of the Mennonites today, at least in North America, maybe in other countries it's different, but in North America it'd be very hard to find a Mennonite church today that believes in the Word of God. <clears throat> That's a sad thing, but it's a reality. So Paul here is rebuking the saints in Galatia, in the Galatian churches. Galatians is an, a region. It's not a town. It's not a city. It's a region. So we have, we live, this church is in the municipality of Norfolk Treehern. Inside that municipality, there's the town of Treehern, there's the town of Rathwell, and there's the town of Lavenham. So there are three towns that make up the bulk of the region, the municipality that we're living. Then, of course, there's all the farmland and the farmers that are also scattered across this municipality. So <clears throat> when Paul is writing here to the churches of Galatia, we're not given the names of the different churches, but there were more than one church in the area of Galatia. And so he's rebuking them here because... And keep in mind, this is inspired of God, so it's God who is doing the rebuking. Paul is the messenger, but he doesn't originate the message. The message came from God. And so, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. So, the Bible tells us that we are saved by grace, but the Bible also tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that we need to come boldly unto the throne of God that we might find grace to help in time of need. Every born-again Christian needs God's grace in order to be able to walk the Christian life. Again, the Calvinist and other groups as well, they, they abuse the word grace and they claim that God's grace, once we're saved, is the fact that he overlooks our sin and accepts us anyway. God doesn't do that. He points out what sin is. He tells us that once we're saved and we sin, we need to confess that sin if we want to be forgiven. He tells us we'll be chastened if we're not willing to confess that sin. He tells us that we can lose rewards if we do not deal with our sin before the cross. So God's grace, saving grace, is that grace that is willing to reach out to the lost sinner and show the lost sinner 
the way of salvation and to forgive the lost sinner of all their past sin up until the moment of salvation. But then the grace that we live by, as Paul is writing here, is that strengthening that we need that we can follow God and not walk in sin. It's not the grace that God overlooks. As you go, if you go in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, in Romans chapter 6, after Paul gives us the doctrinal truths of chapter 5, he says there in verse six, chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So the problem was already there in the time of the Apostle Paul that people wanted to abuse the grace of God. Professing Christians wanted to abuse the grace of God. And so the question here is, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the idea that they had was, well, if I sin, God's going to pour more grace upon me so that I can serve him. And that's not biblical. That's why Paul says, God forbid. Paul, directed by God in writing that, that's not what God's grace is for. So when we look at back at our text again, the problem that we find here in the churches in Galatia and that we find all too often in churches today is that professing Christians are removed from the truth. Now we have had people in our church here and other places where I've pastored, there's been people that have come, people that have expressed their, their desire to be saved, they've talked about repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. They've been baptized. They've been members of the church. They've attended quite faithfully. They've talked about spiritual things. They've asked questions regarding the Bible. And then all of a sudden, they're not around anymore. They leave. What happened? Some of them were probably frauds. They never got saved. Some of them may well have been saved. But what happened? They were removed. They allowed themselves to listen to lies and they didn't turn away from the lies into the truth instead and therefore they walked away. If they're truly saved, they're going to need to confess that and get right with God. Otherwise, they're going to lose rewards. They're going to be saved those by fire. But God knows the heart. I don't. And so I don't know which ones of them were actually saved and which ones were not. The Bible tells us you can tell a tree by its fruit. When the tree is not producing fruit, you can't tell what it is then. So I don't know. <clears throat> and I'm not going to go around and say, well, yes, that person was saved, that person was saved, and they're still saved even though they're nowhere around and they never correspond, so I have no idea what they're doing now. <clears throat> I'm not going to try to use those to say, yeah, this many people were saved under my ministry. That's not important. What's important is that I preach the truth and leave the results in God's hands. <clears throat> so when we look at <clears throat> verse 6 there again, is that these people that Paul is writing to, 
are so soon removed from him that called you unto the, into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. But Paul makes it clear in this passage that what he refers to as another gospel in verse 6 is not really another gospel. It's called that, but it's not another gospel. So when we look at our world today, and we can look at the Lutherans, we can look at the United Church, we can look at the Presbyterians, we can look at the Anglicans, we can look at many Baptist groups, we can look at the Mennonites, and we can say it's not another gospel. God doesn't open the floodgates and say, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you can say the word Jesus, it's all good. He doesn't do that. And so... The Bible is very clear that there, the, the way of salvation and the way of the Christian life is a narrow way. The devil wants to make it very broad. Because if the devil can make it broad and people will believe that lie, he has them. And in the end, they'll stand at the great white throne judgment rather than at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's a danger because as... My brother-in-law Jack understood in the last week that he was living, you don't come back for a second term. He understood. He was in the final days of his life. He didn't know the, the hour of his death, neither did we. But he understood that he was coming to the end. He knew that. And he was very serious in that matter wanting to make sure that things were right between him and God. He wanted that. And I trust that he did that in his heart as well. But I had opportunity to talk to him and read scripture to him and pray with him on those things. But I can't save a person. Only God can do that. And the person needs to call upon the Lord in order to be saved, in order to be forgiven. So it's very important that we understand while at the funeral there was another gospel that was preached, but it's not another gospel. It's a lie that was given to the people. That's the sad thing, that too many preachers, they want to be pleased, they want to be praised by people. They want to... <clears throat> be the friend of sinners without being a true friend to sinners. So it is very important for us to live the truth before others if we're saved and seek to help them to know the truth. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 37 it says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The Christian is someone who is more than a conqueror. He doesn't continue to grovel in sin. The Christian, when he is saved, is able to walk away from sin. First John one nine, but as many or one eight, one twelve. Sorry, first not First John, chapter John, the Gospel of John, one verse twelve. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Power. That power is the power to say no to sin and yes to God. We are given that at the moment we are saved. We can walk away from our sin. We don't have to have that crutch of 
swearing or smoking or drinking or pornography or whatever it is, we can walk away from that. We don't have to wean ourselves off of it. We can walk away from it. We can turn. That's what it is, turning to God from idols. So we can turn to God, and he will enable us to never touch that again. Now, yes, some may fall, and they may, they may slip, but they're not going to keep doing that. Like people that go to AA have to constantly go there and remind everybody that they're a drunkard. That's not how a Christian lives. And that's important that we understand that. And God gives us that ability to please him and serve him. The second thing that we see is that Christian leaders cannot be men-pleasers. Christian leaders cannot be men-pleasers. If you look at verse 10, this is very important to understand this. In verse 10 it says, For do I not persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men... I should not be the servant of Christ. If I should yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. That's very important to understand that you cannot be a man pleaser and still be a servant of Christ. So Christians can be, for instance, politicians. They can be, but they cannot be the type of politicians that we see in our world today, especially in North America. I can't remember, I was trying to think of where I heard it, but I heard recently that there's a few men in uh, government that every, I think it was every day, from the different parties, this man was saying, didn't matter which party, but there's different men from the different parties that have a men's prayer breakfast on Parliament Hill quite often. I can't remember it's every day. But how can you sign on the dotted line to a party that says you have to believe in the murder of unborn children or you have to accept the fact that sodomy is a legitimate lifestyle How can you sign on that and then claim to be a Christian and go to a prayer breakfast? Who are you praying to? You're not praying to the God of the Bible. But you see, the problem with North American politics, and I think it's the same in the Philippines and elsewhere too, is that the politicians are men-pleasers because they want people's votes. And they don't understand that if God is calling them into politics, God can give them a seat at the table. But that's the problem. They're not being called of God as his children. God sets up rulers and he takes down rulers, but they're not following him. They're serving as enemies of God, and they're being used by God to bring judgment upon people who don't want to know the true God. And so a Christian politician would be someone who would put Christ first. He would seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what a Christian politician would be like. He wouldn't be trying to 
please the people first, you want to please God. And that's why I've said before that if someone believes that God is calling them into politics, they would have to run as an independent. Because there's not a single party in this country that you can run under that would honor God. None of them honor God. So you, can't, you cannot sign and say, I am going to sign my allegiance to this party and then be a Christian. You can't do that. It doesn't work. And so that's why politics in Canada is very dirty, it's very corrupt, and it's not a wise thing. I don't believe it's a wise thing to cast your vote, put your name behind any one of them, because they're all corrupt. And so you want your name behind that? I don't want my name behind that. So Paul tells us here, directed again by God, that he says, If I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. That is the problem that most pastors are faced with. Probably every pastor is faced with that challenge. Am I going to be a man pleaser or am I going to serve God? That's a choice that we need to make. And of course, if we make the choice to be men pleasers, we'll get, we could get quite a following. We could have quite a few people coming and wanting to hear us. But if we're going to be God pleasers then it could be that we're not going to have that many people following us because the people don't want to hear the truth. The Bible tells us that in the last days, men shall be lovers of their own selves. And that's where we're living at today. We want to be praised whether we're praiseworthy or not. My wife read something today to me about a young man who who was very thankful that his father had said that he was proud of him. This is a young man that has tattoos over just about his entire body. He's divorced and remarried and uh, doesn't know the Lord, doesn't live for the Lord. And so how can a godly father say to that son, I'm proud of your accomplishments? How can you? You can tell him that you love him, but you can't be proud of what he's doing. The man needs to be saved. But you see, what we want to hear, it's like Esau in the Old Testament. Uh, Jacob was given the blessing, and Esau came to his father and said, Bless me, O father. You only have one blessing, bless me too. And you see, Esau did not have a relationship with God, and so he longed for his father's blessing because that's all he had. But what could, his, what could his father bless him with? Because the blessing belonged to Jacob, and God directed Isaac to bless Jacob with the words that he gave to him. And there was no blessing left for Esau. Esau was not a godly man. Now Jacob had his failures. There were many things that Jacob needed to learn. But Jacob had a different heart than Esau did. And uh, so Jacob received the blessing from God. Esau, because there was no blessing, he wept bitterly. 
And there are a lot of people today that they want to have a blessing from their father, but they don't know the heavenly father who is the only one that can give real and eternal blessings. And that's what every child really needs. It's good to have a good relationship between father and son. That's important. But it's wrong for a father to lie to his, to his children and say that everything is good when it's not. That doesn't help the children. That keeps the children from turning to God and knowing his peace and blessing. So children need to be encouraged in many different ways to trust in God. They need to understand that they're, they're disappointing God, first of all, because he is the one who is the giver of life. And so they're fighting against God, and they're also disappointing their earthly father when they choose not to follow the true God. Because any godly earthly father wants to know that his children are going to go to heaven. And he wants to know that while they're on this earth that they're going to do things that are going to please the heavenly father. That's what any earthly father is concerned about. He's not concerned about their, whether the children can find a good paying job and those kinds of things. That's not his primary concern. His primary concern is that his children know the Lord and are serving him. So... Christian leaders cannot be men-pleasers. They can't be. It doesn't work. Then the third thing that we see, and this is where we're going to get into the practical aspect of, of churches again, true churches must obey God's word. True churches must obey God's word. And this is where I want to draw some points from my background as being raised in a Mennonite Brethren home. Now the Mennonite Brethren, they came into existence in about 1860, according to history. And they began as a result of a disagreement that they had with the General Conference Mennonites back in Russia. The Mennonites in Russia, they traveled from Uruguay, or not Uruguay, Ukraine, and uh, Prussia and Poland and different places and wherever they went they believed in separation now the Bible teaches us that Christians need to be separated from the world but the Mennonites had this idea that they needed to be so separate that they did not want any interaction with the people around them so they didn't believe in evangelizing the people either they wanted to keep themselves, very much like the Hutterites of today. The Hutterites live in colonies. They go shopping in stores, they do business, they buy their equipment from the same place that, that other people do. But they, they are very much a separated people. And the Mennonites had that same idea. And so they made an agreement in the countries that they lived in that they wanted a parcel of ground they would live in that, create their own villages and so on. They would have their own schools, their own churches, and they would not interact with the people of the land. The Mennonite Brethren people, they were reading the Bible and they saw this is not right. We need to evangelize the people of the land. 
there was a disagreement and so there was a split that took place and the Mennonite brethren were formed. They had the gospel at one point, but by that time, as we can see by 1860, the Mennonites in general were not following the teachings of their chosen founder, Menno Simons. Menno Simons was a Catholic priest who was saved. He was no longer a Catholic priest, but he was trained as a Catholic priest. But he converted, he was saved, and started teaching the truth. He had a following. People liked his teaching. They wanted him to start a religious group, and he said no. He wanted the people to continue to study the Bible. But when he died, of course, when you die, you lose control of everything. You can have no longer any say about anything. And he was not just a teacher, but he was a writer. So the people took his writings and they built the Mennonite religion on the writings of Menno Simons. And, of course, Menno Simons being a human being, his writings were deficient. And so the Mennonite groups took whatever parts they liked of those writings, interpreted them the way that they wanted to interpret them, and that's why by the time of the 1860s you have this corruption where the general conference Mennonites believe we don't need to evangelize other people. Mennonite brethren, they broke away from that and they taught the gospel for a short time. When they came to Canada, there were some of them that were somewhat still in that same frame of mind, but where I grew up, I found out as an older man, I didn't know it when I was a young child, I remember the man, the pastor that was there at that time, I remember him, but I was told that he went to the General Conference Mennonite Church that was in my hometown, asking permission from them and asking permission from the Mennonite Brethren he went into the pulpit of the General Conference Mennonite Church and he apologized to them that the Mennonite Brethren had separated themselves from the General Conference Mennonites. Now the General Conference Mennonites, they believed that you could dance, you could smoke, you could drink, and you could still be a good Christian. The Mennonite Brethren at that time didn't believe that. Maybe he did, I don't know. But I know that in our church at that time, from what I remember, that was not the teaching of that church. I was not a member of that church. I wasn't even saved at that time. But I've, I've always been someone who is observant of other people and different things that are going on. God has put that in me. And so those are some things that I noticed. But today... The church that I grew up in is nothing more than a social club. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. There's nothing there for anyone. So they have really fallen apart. But recently, not so, sorry, not so recent, but back a few years ago, there was a Muslim man who came to a town that I was uh, pastoring in and uh, was being advertised and so I wanted to hear what this man is going to talk about the Palestinians 
So I wanted to hear what this man had to say, and he went to a Mennonite uh, college in the town where I was at, and that's where he was going to speak. And I had a pretty good idea what he was going to be speaking about, but I wanted to hear from his mouth. And of course, his talk was about how that the, the Jews in Israel are persecuting the Palestinians. Now, the Palestinians are uh, not even a people. There is no such a thing as Palestinians. The Palestinians are Arabs, mostly Muslims, who come from Jordan and Saudi Arabia and different countries around there, Lebanon and so on, who were chosen by the Arab community that in the early days of Israel's repopulation of the land of Israel, the Arabs fought against Israel and they expected to be able to overthrow them. Because in the early days when Israel went back to their land, they didn't have any tanks, they had very few guns, they had no air force, and so the Arabs figured this is going to be easy picking, we can easily overthrow them. But what the Arab world didn't understand is that God had brought the Israelis back into their land. And he was not going to allow the Arabs to chase them out. So the Arabs had chosen a group of people that they were going to have ready to take over and live in Israel once they drove the Jews out. Well, they didn't drive the Jews out. So now these people that they had chosen to populate Israel, where are they going to put them? They said, you can't come back to where you came from. We're going to make you refugees so that we can use that to put you as part of a pity trip with the world to get funding. And eventually, through that method, we will drive out the Jews and you will take over that land. Well, that hasn't happened to this day, and it's not going to happen either. So the Palestinians are people that belong in Jordan and Saudi Arabia and Lebanon and elsewhere, but they are not a people. They are from other places. And so just recently, there was a young person from a Mennonite university who traveled to the Middle East and he came back with a report that the Palestinians are hard done by, the Jews are not treating them right, and there needs to be justice in the Middle East. He was just as brainwashed as that Muslim man that came to complain about how the Palestinians were being treated. And no one in the group that he was speaking to, I wasn't there, I just saw it on the internet, no one got up afterwards and said, now, wait a minute, this is what this young person has observed, but here are the facts. No one said that. And then this week in the news, I read that the Mennonites of Manitoba have joined together with the Evangelical Lutherans, the Presbyterians, and the Anglicans, the United Church, to encourage the government of Manitoba to waste several hundred thousand dollars to try to search for two native women who they think might be in the landfill outside of Winnipeg. And uh, this is how the Mennonites have fallen. 
they now have a social gospel and they think that by pleasing people they're going to gain a following. They're not pleasing God, they're pleasing people. And so that's how, that's what happens when a religious group and when religious leaders do not believe the gospel, when they choose another gospel rather than the word of God. They end up way off. It starts maybe in small little things, but as I said, even of the church that I grew up in, it is not a God-fearing church at all. There's nothing godly about it. And from what I read about the Mennonites of Manitoba joining with these other secular religious groups, they are themselves just as secular. And they have no message. They have no hope for anyone. It's a tragedy if there are those two native women in that landfill somewhere. Yes, it is. But that's not the whole story. How did they end up there? What happened? And what we need to be doing, not just with the natives, but with anybody, is we need to be teaching them the gospel. That's what they need. That's what, what's going to stop the tragedy that the Indians are facing in North America when they believe the gospel. Now, as a people group, they're not going to all get saved. But that's where we have failed in not being vocal enough with the gospel. And the only way that we can be vocal enough with the gospel is if we do not join hands with the United and the Presbyterian and the Anglican and the Evangelical Lutheran and whatever other conglomerate there is out there. The message of the gospel is far too important to mix it up with people who do not believe the gospel. So Paul, in our text here, is told by God to rebuke the churches in Galatia because they were turning to another gospel which was not another gospel. They were allowing that false gospel to influence their thinking. But God was gracious and did not allow them to continue to do that. Because if they would have continued to do that, it wouldn't have just affected them, but it would have affected all generations after them. If we could have the liberal, mamby-pamby type of a gospel that is being preached so much today, if that's all there was, we'd be in trouble. And so for us today, it is just as important that we understand that there is only one true gospel... And that true gospel is found in the Bible. That's not something that you're going to know everything about it just because you look at one passage. But it's a lifelong pursuit of understanding and clarifying the message that God has given in his word of what is the gospel. What is it that people need to know in order to be saved? And we need to keep reminding ourselves, but we also need to remind the lost what the gospel is. That we don't water it down and change it to something that is not another. 
but that we keep the gospel pure as the scriptures are and help people to know the truth and allow the Spirit of God to work in the hearts of the lost to bring them to the place of repentance and true salvation. God wants people to be saved. His word is powerful. It will offend people, but it will also bring some people to their knees to the place of repentance and true salvation. It's not up to us, those of us that are saved, to try to make sure that we never offend anyone with the truth. The truth is going to be an offense to those who don't want it. But it's up to us to give people the opportunity to be offended to the place where they get saved. Remember, the Apostle Paul was first introduced to us as Saul the Pharisee. He was offended by the gospel. He consented to the killing of Stephen. He was going to Damascus with letters from the chief priest to arrest Christians, to imprison them. But on that road to Damascus, after being offended by Stephen's preaching and others' preaching, but on that road to Damascus, God stopped him, and he was saved. And he was no longer offended by the gospel, but now he embraced the gospel. It wasn't because somebody softened the gospel message so that it would be easier for Paul to swallow it. It was because the Spirit of God was continuing to work in Saul's life, and he was broken and he was saved. And so for those of us that are saved, we need to continue to be steadfast and faithful to the truth and give people that opportunity. Yes, they can be offended for a time, but we need to continue to walk steadfastly and faithfully and preach the truth and trust God to do his work in people's hearts and lives and to bring some of them to the place of repentance and true biblical salvation. That's our duty as Christians. We're not to be men-pleasers, but we're to be servants of the true God. That's the challenge for born-again Christians today, as it has in any been in any generation. So if you're listening today and you're not saved, maybe you're a Mennonite that's been listening and you took offense to something I said about the Mennonites. Well, stop and think about it. Read your Bible and stop and think about it. If you are stuck in that Mennonite tradition and you think that that's your ticket to heaven, you need to read your Bible and understand that what the Mennonites, for the most part, are teaching is foreign to the Bible. Take the Word of God and follow what God says. And then get into a good church and get, if you're saved, get into a good church and start serving God as one of his children and learn how to walk with him so you can help others to know his peace and blessing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have thy word. We're thankful that we can study thy word, thankful for the truthfulness of thy word that we can help others to know the truth. And we are living in a time where many people 
have been softened so much by our secular educational system and our secular religious system that people cannot handle the truth. They take offense to every little thing and then they pursue those who would dare to speak the truth to try to silence them. But we're thankful for the love of God that indwells every true child of God and that we want to help others to know the truth. We're willing to take abuse for the sake of seeing others come to know the truth. And so we pray for each one that's listening today to this message or listens in the future that each one would stop and think carefully of what they are believing. Are they men pleasers? Or are they servants of the true and living God? And we need to be thy servants. There's a blessing in being a servant of the true God. We're thankful for the gift of salvation that is available today through repentance toward thee, the true God, and faith toward thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for each one that's listening that they might see the importance of walking in truth and glorifying thee in their lives. We pray in Jesus' name.